Well, good morning to you there. Good morning. How you doing down there in South Carolina? Oh, you know, I'm just uh, sipping some sweet tea and, and rocking in my rocking chair, as always. Well, I was hoping you would say you were having a mint julep, to be honest. But if you have some sweet tea, I would, I'm would. i an envy either way. Yeah, well, a mint julep is usually saved for more of uh, the Kentucky Derby times. But <laughs> I, I do I do have one every once in a while. <laughs> oh, my God. I do miss I Charleston. And I miss you. So what have you been up to? We had a, a double podcast weekend. So that's been a good majority of the weekend, but in general, just trying to make this podcast better, get out there and like get spread the word and Yeah, y'all please subscribe. We really need you to subscribe to the to us because we we it's the only way we know if you're listening. Yeah, like we really like I, I'm being a hundred percent serious like the podcast world of analytics of knowing who and what and why is is so impossible and overwhelming it's overwhelming and i don't know if if we're reaching you guys so please share your comments and and if you have any like you know what i really want to do is start getting some more feedback from our listeners of like what they want to hear next like who they would want to hear from who do you want on the show? Who would you like to hear about? We, I know we've got some really great doctors and, and experts coming up in the next few weeks. So we're, we're doing our best here, but it is good to hear from our listeners for sure. Yeah, because it's like as much as I do feel like this is cathartic just for us to do and, and it's fun and all that. But at the end of the day, the whole point is to help people. To help so people. So we want to get yeah. the word out. We want to spread it. We would just really appreciate any sharing, subscribing and following. And as always... Our Facebook and and our website nextpagepodcast.com and Instagram nextpagepodcast. All of it is is the way to know when who's coming up, when they're coming up, and and also you know we want to hear your feedback of wh- which episodes resonated with you. Also, what what questions you might have for like we're going to bring on um, another a couple of therapists to talk about like some narcissism, some anxiety, the episode with Lair. I've gotten some great feedback, but it's important. We want to give y'all what you want to hear as much as we want to put out what we want to talk about. (laughs) So (laughs) exactly. And so who do we have on the program today? So today we have Samantha Berman, who I was very grateful you were able to introduce me to. And so I will give everybody a little bit of background on her. Samantha Berman is not defined by just one profession. As a person who has always found the greatest happiness in helping others, she is multifaceted, empathic, and professional. In her career, she has established herself as the dance captain of multiple Broadway national tours. She has performed life-saving measures saving patients' lives as an emergency room registered nurse, which we get into very deeply. She can also be heard on commercials broadcasted on national television and global streaming media platforms as the voice of brands such as Instacart, Blue Apron, Goodyear, and networks like Shout, Shout TV, Cult, and even at your local Sunoco gas pump. Lastly, she can be spotted as a motion capture actor as the character of Switchblade in the video game Rogue Company. Samantha loves spending time in her recording studio and at the hospital in the emergency room. However, coming home to be mom to her four-legged pup named Callie is her absolute favorite. Please check out her website and her Instagram and her LinkedIn, and we give you we'll give you all that in the show notes. But we are just so thrilled to introduce Samantha Berman. All right, well, welcome Samantha Berman. Good morning. 
Good morning. How are you doing this morning? I'm awake. That's how we're doing. <laughs> I'm here. I do keep I'm forgetting that you're on. You're also in LA time, so I'm a little bit. I don't know. I guess spoiled because I get to do this at noon, and Todd has to do it at nine. So it's fine. Thank y'all for your early morning time. We really, I appreciate it. And right now, just for everybody else that is not watching, Samantha is, is an amazing booth where she does her work that we'll get into, but I am definitely taking some screenshots of it because it's just too cool. But let's just go ahead and get into it and and kind of, we understand that you have carved out a very unique kind of career path. So could you give us a little bit of background about yourself and, and where you grew up and what led you to pursue kind of three completely separate careers? Yeah. Well, I am a military brat, born to a physician who was in the military. We moved around a little bit when I was young, and then we ended up in Sacramento. So I grew up mostly in Sacramento, where I found amazing sports such as baton twirling, because that's what everybody does. Of course. Which led me to dance, which (laughs) then led me to think that I should be in musicals, which then led me into my first career of musical theater, where I met the famous Todd. Oh, y'all. Oh, the Todd. Yeah. Then we went from musicals to a 180 degree switch into nursing, which I guess with a physician as a father doesn't make, I guess it's not that confusing. It does kind of make sense. And then I became an ER nurse. And after that, I decided I wanted to go back into the arts and I started taking up voiceover, which is why you see this booth. The booth is really cool. Yeah, it is cool. It is a cool booth. I really like it. Is that in your house? Like, where is it Mm -hmm. located? So it's in my office. I actually had to buy a two bedroom (laughs) when I was house hunting. I was like, or, you know, condo hunting, whatever you can afford here in L.A. I was like, I need a second bedroom. Where's my booth going to go? Oh, my God. I love that thing. It's I mean, it's pretty massive. It's It's enormous. Like five by five. And it's tall and took five people for it to be moved in here. So it's not going anywhere. Wow. Well, it's extremely (laughs) helpful for us because usually we have a lot of back and forth with our guests of getting everything technically set up with the AirPods and the doing all that stuff. So you've made it very convenient. So thank you. I aim to please. I'm just obsessed with the baton twirling situation. (laughs) Most people are. I mean, it was pretty epic career. Yeah. As a child. Knowing you, you were you were actually like going to go for the Olympics. Like it was a serious deal. It was very serious. The year I quit, I was going to Worlds and my coaches, which one of my coaches lived in Ohio. The other one lived in the Bay Area and I'm from Sacramento. So that wasn't particularly close. So every week my mom would drive me to the Bay Area for lessons. And then twice a year, my coach from Ohio would come out and like choreograph a routine for me and do all this stuff. And they decided amongst themselves that they were going to use the song, the Brahms lullaby song, which I don't know. I was 12 years old. I hated that song. (laughs) And I kept telling them, I was like, I really don't want to do this. I really don't like this song. (laughs) And they didn't believe me. And finally, one day I was like, I've had it. I was so isolated because they made me be a solo twirler. I wasn't allowed to like participate with like the team. I wasn't allowed to do any of that. I was like just myself practicing every day for two to three hours a day. And I was like, I'm over this. I'm done. And my mom tried to warn them. My mom tried to be like, she doesn't like her solo. She doesn't like being alone. You need to do something about this. And they didn't believe her. And so I quit. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will talk about that a little later. But I really want to know, how did Groupon change your life? Oh, boy. (laughs) 
So funny story, when we talk about that transition from nursing into voiceover, I had been a nurse for about six months and I felt like my creative side was dying inside. I felt like all of the creative outlets that I had pursued in my 20s, well, yeah, this was in my 20s. Yeah, I was already in my 30s by this point. But in my 20s, I had all of these creative outlets. I had dance. I had singing. I had acting. You know, you had all these things like making you thrive inside. And then nursing, I mean, it's creative, but it's so black and white. There's a right and a wrong. There's a good and a bad. And there's an alive and a dead, like as graphic and morphic as that is. Morphic? Morphic's not a word. Morbid. Morbid. But you know what? Morbid. Morbid is the word I'm looking for. Morbid is the word I'm looking for. You're correct. So as, as bad as that sounds, that's what it is. And so I was dying inside. I felt myself getting more and more depressed. I felt myself just falling into myself. And I literally drove past a studio that was called the Voice Actors Studio in Las Vegas. I drove by it for years, years. I drove by this studio being like, I wonder what that is. Like, I wonder what what they even do. Like, is it even anything? And then one day I was going through Groupon and there it was on Groupon for 50 percent off the first (laughs) intro class. And I was like, well, I mean, what's twenty five dollars? Yeah, whatever. I I, I could spare twenty five dollars. Clicked by, bought it, went to my very first class of voiceover and literally my whole life changed. That's awesome. And that's now why you have this this studio in your house. <laughs> yes. I think we have, not that Groupon is listening. Thank you. Thank you for, right? for what you do. <laughs> if you want to be a sponsor, we would welcome that. But also changing lives. And I agree. What do you got to lose with, with 25 bucks? And, and it's a great outlet. So speaking of all the different things that you have done, kind of in your former onstage performing life that you you kind of missed before you you got the group on you were a dance captain of multiple broadway national tours so how did you get involved with that and for all of our listeners and myself as well what exactly does being a dance captain entail these are good questions so my path into becoming a dance captain started because I was a dancer. And that started because of baton twirling. So that's how that all links together. When I went to college, I thought, oh, I'll be a dance major, which I was when I first went into college, I was a dance major. And then I auditioned for a musical. Even before school started, it was like the week before school started, I auditioned for the musical, got in, and I was a freshman. And there was only two freshmen in the musical at all. And the music director was like, well, you already know how to dance. Why, why would you get a degree in dance? Why don't you do theater? And I was like, I guess you make a really good point. Like, I already know how to do this thing very well, this one part. Yeah. Why not explore the other outlets of it? And so I did. I started gearing myself. I like double majored or whatever for years until I finally finished and I never finished the dance one. And I got a theater degree, learned how to sing and got into musicals that way. And so I started doing musicals professionally at the age of 19 in the Los Angeles area because I went to UC Irvine. And so that school, the really cool thing about that school is that they allow you to work professionally while you're in school. Unlike many other programs out there, musical theater programs, they don't allow you to work outside of school. I know there's hundreds out there that don't allow that unless it's like the summertime. But this one allowed you during school to do it. And they basically had the idea of like, well, if you're going to work as a professional in the industry already, why would we stop you? That's like the best learning lesson you could ever get. So I started working 
in shows and started doing summer stock as well. And then that just kind of kept going. The ball kept rolling. And so, of course, when I graduated, I was like, I sang in cruise ships and stuff like that. And right after I did that, I told my mom, I was like, I'm going to move to New York. And she was like, you're not going to move to New York. Definitely moved to New York. Oh, my goodness. January 1st of 2009, literally that night from the 30, was it the 31st to the 1st? I flew red eye and landed in New York City January 1st of 2009. And it was just an audition process. It took me a couple of years to book my first tour, but did a ton of regional theater, just like most musical theater actors. They do tons and tons of regional theater. And then because of my dance background, because I was such a strong dancer, I auditioned for South Pacific and got in. And then they asked me if I wanted to be dance captain. And I was like, ah, only if I'm on stage. So at that time, I actually was on stage and still dance captain in that tour. So that's normally a separate thing. What is a dance captain, basically? Yeah. So a dance captain has a very unique role. They are kind of management in a way because they are in charge of the movement and the blocking and the consistency of the show and keeping it consistent from day one to the day that they close. So they basically know every single track, every single placement, and every single spot that it any actor on the stage is standing at any given time of the show. And then specifically, most dance captains have to know every single dance track as well. So they have to know girls, boys, and all the leads because, of course, if they have any sort of movement, which everybody does because everybody moves, yeah, they have to know every single track of where everybody is. So I have a lot of questions. So I, I've been most recently gotten into ballroom dance mm-hmm. as because I did a fundraiser for the American Lung Association, which all of our listeners are pretty aware of at this point, but did a ballroom dance in front of a, way too many people without any <laughs> dance background. But it really like I, I got the bug, like I caught the bug. I had, I just didn't want to stop. And so now I'm training for a showcase dance and it's combo of cha-cha, rumba, and salsa. And there are times that we, I'm like doing this dance who my dance partner literally learned the same day that I did from a dance coach that came in from, from out of town. And it's like, he has this ability to just like, he learned it that one time. He still had to kind of like feel it out, but it's like, he just, now it's so ingrained in him. Like there's, it, it was so fast. Whereas like me, I'm like, oh, I forgot what, what happens next. <laughs> like, so I'm just so impressed that that like that part of your brain, like I'm convinced that it's gotta be like just massive in somehow it develops in like spatial or ways or something because I am just always extremely impressed, like, how people keep track of all these different dances. How do you keep track of, like, all the guys, all the girls, your own dance, everybody? Like, how, how, like, could you give me some insight into, like, the genius that comes behind that? Well, my genius is wore out, so it's gone. (laughs) Oh. That's gone. That whole part (laughs) of my life was gone. But when I was doing it, you're right, it was second nature. I could legitimately watch somebody do maybe like 30 seconds of a dance, and I could literally repeat it almost verbatim. That was kind of my like special niche. Niche? Niche? Well, yeah, it's, I it's think early. it's still up niche. in the air or whatever. Niche. 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 <laughs> niche. Niche. Whatever. That was kind of like my specialty in dance was that I was able to watch things and repeat it without ever having to like stand up and do it. I know there was a few times like 
Todd would send me videos of things and be like, can yeah. you break it down for me? And like, I would just watch it and be like, oh yeah, this is what they're doing. And then I could break it down for somebody. But you would do it within like 10 minutes. Like Sam, you, I would send you the video and you'd be like, I got this. And you would watch it. And then you would go, okay, five, six, <laughs> seven, eight. You're going to put your right foot out. Yeah. And it was like, what? <laughs> yeah. And she sent it right back to me. And it, yeah, it was when I would have like callbacks or whatever. And they would send mm-hmm. the dance combination early. Have you ever considered like using that talent to like become a TikTok star or something? Like just to go on and just like do like a bunch of, <laughs> I don't know. Cause I still don't really. Oh, break, break, break down the Lizzo yeah, stuff. Break down my own dance for this because that is all I'm doing a Lizzo song. But unfortunately, I feel a little old to be doing oh, dances no. on TikTok. But oh, no, honey, I know that no. there's a whole range of ages that do it. Yeah, apparently yeah. we're supposed to know how to use TikTok now, and and I'm I'm not a huge. I'm having a hard time with the learning curve, but we'll get there. <laughs> it's a wave of the future. Exactly. You can put your ballroom on there. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, Sam, would you say that mental health is a prevalent concern in theater? I mean, specifically, can you speak to what it's like being in a managerial position, dealing with actors who were often like brilliant on stage, but were clearly struggling with mental health or mental illness off stage? Yeah, I think there's a lot of mental health that goes into acting specifically because we're so in tuned with our emotions and We tend to be people who grew up with emotions that didn't really know how to express those emotions. So we went into art forms that allowed us to express that. And I think sometimes we're when we become professionals in the industry specifically, maybe not even if you are a professional, but specifically when you become a professional in that industry, you I don't know if you ever create a release from it. So you're in the arts and you're emotional all the time and this is your job. And because it comes all it's all consuming. It's your life. Like you live in that bubble. You live in this emotional bubble that you never step out of it. And I think we get when we're there, we're consumed by even the smallest of things, like even the smallest of emotions. And that became very prevalent on tour when you were isolated from your own family, from your own friends, and you were living on the road with this group of, I mean, pretty much strangers for for some people, strangers, because they moved directly on tour and they knew no one before. And then some people had the rehearsal process of like four or five weeks of getting to know people. But even then, it's like you've known these people four or five weeks of your life. And now you're spending every waking moment with them from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed with them, not bed with them, but, you know, like you may be sharing (laughs) room with them or yeah, maybe they have a romance. You're sharing every waking moment with these people. So there's never a time when you're separated from that world. So you never get out of your own head. And I think that heightens your emotion and that heightens all of the things that you already had inside of you, whether that's you have depressive states of yourself, whether you have manic phases of yourself, whether you just don't feel quite right. And we're all really insecure in the arts. We needed a lot of, I mean, I hate to say that, but I am like, I still am too. To this day, it's like, I still need validation. I still need reassurance that like, I'm good at something that I do. And I think a lot of that is very prevalent with actors specifically. And so it's like, we need that constant validation. And when you're constantly with people who need that constant validation with you. It's like a whirlwind effect that just the emotion gets bigger and like the tornado gets larger and just keeps taking over and over. And specifically when you're on tour, it just can engulf the whole cast so quickly and people fall down one by one just with their own mental il- illnesses that they're not 
taking care of. Yeah. I mean, Sam's told me so many stories, but I remember one story, Sam, you told me where you gave an actor a note and they went ballistic in the, in the dressing, like, please stand on seven, please don't stand on eight kind of note. And Sam, do you remember this story? They went ballistic. Another actor came up to me later and was like, just so you know, that actor took every single desk that was sitting in there and slammed it against the the wall. And they said they broke some chairs. They ended up like creating damage in this room just because they received a note. And he then came up to me later and tried to fight me against it, trying to say that, like, I was wrong, that I didn't know the dance. I didn't know what I was doing. And here I had been. Yeah. Here (laughs) I'd been on like tour and dance captain by this point for like 10 and a half months or something like that. It was something ridiculously long that I'd been doing this. And I was like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Like, the point is, is like, it doesn't matter if I'm right or you're right. This is my note I'm giving you. And frankly, you're in the dark. So either stand in the light and stand on the number or don't. But don't be mad at me when you're not seen. Yeah. I personally saw a lot when we were on tour together where people would. It was intense. It just becomes like Sam said, it becomes a very intense environment because you don't get a break from these people ever. Well, I I mean, I'm definitely gathering. Take anybody and put them into close quarters and have them under pressure as far as like to get something right and then Mm -hmm. to have and traveling and traveling and you're all kind of the same personality like you have the same interests (laughs) same insecurities as you mentioned and there's no like grounding like normally with like a friend group like there's always the the mediator or or the the down-to-earth one like there's seems like there's not a whole lot of that so was that did you feel like sometimes that was had to be your role as the dance captain to be like almost like their therapist a little bit their therapist but more I was the person that was like just very like calm with lots of things I couldn't get very emotional with things like I couldn't get emotional with people and I couldn't get riled up because if I got riled up they would get really riled up so because you're in that managerial position you kind of just have to step back and be that like more stoic personality even though inside I'm just like they are, too. I'm insecure and I want that next role and I want that, too. It's like you're not allowed to be that because you have to be a certain persona just so that people respect you or like will listen to you every day. Like imagine if I my emotions were up and down every day, they'd be like, I'm not listening to her. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very common, too, just even in like a a fast paced work environment. So like mm-hmm. I own a restaurant, it there are days that World Cup is on or it's Oktoberfest because it's a beer garden. And if you aren't like, even though I, my managers or I may be internally panicking about something like a hood goes down, something, we're running out of glassware. You have to almost be like, okay, inside you can think that on the outside, everything is fine. And so Mm -hmm. I imagine that causes its own kind of repercussions for you later on to have to kind of manage those feelings at some point. Do you feel that way? Yeah, my poor mom. She had to listen to it all. <laughs> yeah, my poor mom. Like in the morning, I'd be like, Mom, do you know what happened last night? They just like, they took their damn. Blah, 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 blah. My poor mom has heard so much gossip about people she's never met. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for her to at least yeah. be there for you. Well, I guess let's kind of shift gears a little bit. And I think this really kind of speaks to kind of who you are as a person from was kind of wondering what the connection would be, but I can already kind of tell that since you're able to be that 
grounding force and 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 kind of see the bigger picture. I want to shift kind of from your performance career to your nursing career. So what drove you to make that switch? And we, we know, as we know, your father was and is a pretty big deal in the medical field. And so did that have any influence on your decision or cause any pressure to leave? And, and what was the transition like? So there was there was always pressure. My whole childhood, there was pressure for me to go into something that was more stable than the arts. And I never actually planned on going into the arts. It just kind of happened. It was like what I mentioned before of like I was 19 and I just I auditioned for something and I started working professionally. And it was like one of those things where it snowballed into this career that I didn't even plan on having. I kept going like in college, I kept being like, I'll go back to the medical field. I'm going to be a doctor. Like I loved biology. I loved science. I thought it was like, I'll just take some science classes. It'll be fine. And then the arts just kept pulling me more and more towards it. And then, of course, like many stories, I met a boy in New York. We fell in love and we decided like we wanted to raise a family and get married. So we ended up moving out of New York even before I got We Will Rock You, which was the last tour I was dance captain of. We moved out of New York and then I found out I booked all this work and I was like, well, I guess I keep going with the work. I keep going until it's out. So the plan was always I was going to go back to school and I really wanted to go into physical therapy. That was the idea of like connected dance with movement, with like physical therapy and personal training and that kind of thing. And I loved that idea. However, when tour ended and then I ended up in Vegas with, at that time, my fiance, things were not great with us. And he slowly left the picture several months after I moved there. And I was then there by myself going, what do I do? How do I do this? How do I survive? How do I go to school? And at that time, physical therapy would have been about nine years of school. And here I was like my later 20s being like, how do I go to school for nine years? And it was actually my dad who stepped in that was like, have you ever thought about nursing? Like, really, have you ever thought about nursing? And I was like, I don't know, dad. I don't know if I really want to work in a hospital like that. So he was like, why don't you come and follow me for a couple of days? See if you like it. And if you like it and you think you can do this, just become a nurse, become a nurse and then pursue whatever else you want to pursue, because nursing does have that ability because the schedule is generally three twelves a, a week, you're allowed to do and have another life beyond nursing. When you say three twelves a week, three twelve hour shifts, is that what you mean? Generally, yes. the The typical nursing schedule is three twelve hours, three twelve hour shifts a week, and that's full time. So that's that's the brilliant part about nursing. And so I was like, okay, Dad. So I followed him for a couple of days. I shadowed him. And then after that, I was like, OK, dad, I can do this. And he was like, that's it. You're just gonna become <laughs> I was like, yeah, I think I can do it. So I ended up changing my major to nursing, busted through within three years, which if you've ever gone to nursing school to all the nurses out there, congratulations for passing that NCLEX. It is a very difficult test and it is so pressurized and just getting through nursing school is extremely difficult. I don't think people realize how hard nursing school is. I've never worked harder in my life than when I went to those 16 months of nursing school and busted through. So congratulations to all the nurses out there for doing that and then passing that test at the end of it. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel and all the doors open and the gods go up and you know, every <laughs> light goes on because it's like, oh my God, I just made it. I made it through. Yeah. Sam, can you describe what it's like to be an ER nurse and specifically at the beginning of COVID-19? Yeah. Were you scared to go to work and how did you feel about the way we as a country and the world handled the pandemic in general? So ER nursing had a very specific view on COVID because we were considered 
frontliners. We were considered first responders at that point because once you drop a patient off, you're a first responder. You are the first person to look at this person. And ER at that time, I mean, it definitely was like, I mean, I remember in about November of 2019, I remember we we would hear this thing that, excuse my unpoliticalness, but that Chinese virus. Oh, yeah. You would hear that thing that like people would be like, oh, yeah, there's that Chinese virus. And we started hearing that in Huddle. We started hearing like, oh, OK, what is that? Like, what? I don't really understand. And, you know, it would get thrown around and no one could remember what COVID like we could never no one could remember COV202, yeah, whatever yeah. the thing was, what we were calling it. But yet underneath it, you could feel the tension that was rising from it because you're like, is it something real? Is it real? Yeah. Because we don't live in China and we're just hearing it. Is it propaganda? Is it is this really happening? And then, you know, videos released of like people dying on the streets and all that stuff. And even to this day, I don't know if that's real, but it got to us. And it definitely was one of those things where people were getting scared. Yeah, I wanted to ask, like, and I I hate to interrupt, but like, did you feel like Obviously, everybody in the medical field had a little bit of a head more was more ahead of it than your average person. But not really. You really. So I was going to ask you, did you feel like there was any kind of action being taken at that point or kind of still doing the wait and see like the rest of us? We were really doing the wait and see like hospitals were starting to prepare. Like you could tell that the hospitals were starting to buy more supplies, things like N95s. Like I remember we had a box of N95s that I actually stole for Todd. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And I stole them before like they told us like we couldn't take supplies because they didn't tell us we were going to run out at that point. They, they, They kept saying, we're fine. We're fine. We're building our supplies. We're good. We're good. We're good. And we didn't hear about the shortage that was coming. So we started like you could feel it. You could feel that it was coming. And then in New York, at the same time that L.A. was building its supplies, New York was starting to go off. And that's when New York's peak was starting to go up and like everybody was starting to get sick there and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And at that point, then L.A.'s like sitting here with our thumbs twiddling, being like, when is ours going to pop? When is our when is this going to happen for us? Because we had from about March to probably May, we had crickets because they closed L.A. Everything went dead. People stopped coming into the hospitals. And it was this eerie feeling. You would go to work and you'd be like, you would see like half as many patients as you normally do. They sent, they would send nurses home because we didn't have anything to do. Like, I mean, we literally were sitting there like waiting and like one person would come in with shortness of breath and a cough. And we didn't even know if it was COVID or not COVID. And we would get all pappered up, you know, like yeah. we put on the gear and we'd get the goggles with the the face shield and the this and the that. And we would get so ready to go and we test them. And then we'd find out they were like bronchitis or something like that, asthma or something. But we would get so scared that we were going to just get it and die. I remember there was just a bunch of like nurses that were terrified that they were going to bring this home to their families, to their loved ones. They went to some pretty extreme, like people would take showers at work and they would change clothes. And it got to a point where you were like, this is getting a little ridiculous. But they had to do it. Yeah. When did it kind of really like, because I, so you were in LA at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did it kind of catch up to you guys, if you will? Because I know y'all did do very good, like really good shutdown, but there's only so long people can be confined. So did you ever, was there an overwhelming, like you can pinpoint kind of when it became overwhelming? So it started going up in case numbers. I want to say, like, I don't remember exactly because this was a few years ago, but I want to say 
June, July, it started growing a little bit. By August, September, it started going way higher. And I don't remember exactly when the peak was, but it was sometime in the fall where every single room was COVID positive. And there was a point from that point forward, that first surge that we had, that if you weren't COVID positive, it was like, hey, you're not COVID positive. Congratulations. Like it was one of those things where you were like, wow, congratulations. You've somehow made it through this place. And the most horrible part was is that people who came in not COVID positive, if they stayed in the hospital, even if they weren't, they ended up with COVID generally. When did you start moving out into the tents? I want to say the tents, the tents started going up in the summer. I want to say I remember working in the tent in like November, like October, November of 2020. And I want to say those tents stayed up for about a year plus. They just went down because they went down and then they came back up and they just went back down again. So we don't have tents currently. However, now we're going to build tents for the next epidemic that's coming. So Mon- is that monkeypox? Yeah, monkeypox. They're talking about putting up tents again for monkeypox. So, well, I mean, that's kind of it's just scary that this is like a continuous because I think everybody was kind of waiting for this to just be over and everything to be normal. So that's like a really fun idea that now we're going into something totally different. Yeah. Sam, how did you feel about how we handled COVID-19 as a country in comparison to other countries? I think, oh gosh, this is such a heightened political question because there's so much of COVID that was dealt by politics instead of the science. And Also, we've had multiple waves of this. The very first wave of COVID was horrendous what it was doing. It was dropping people's oxygen levels. It was making people extremely short of breath. It was doing those things that it was doing all of those things. It was heightening people's underlying illnesses that did lead them into death and things like that. And it was scary. By the time we got the second wave, COVID dissipated a lot. A lot of those extreme symptoms that we were seeing, we weren't seeing anymore. But yet we were still acting like we were seeing those ones. So as a country, it was like this hysteria around COVID and even the second wave of COVID, this hysteria around the second wave of COVID when it didn't have all those symptoms. Yeah. And yet we still it's like we we, L.A. still stayed in lockdown. We still shut everything down. We closed society. We had people still working from home. And I think the trauma that, that that made people like it heightened people's own personal trauma. It was like people felt so alone, so sheltered. And I think it did way more to the mental health of people than anything else. I mean, people were terrified. The second wave of COVID, people were terrified they were going to die because right. they had heard from the first one or they had a loved one who'd passed away. Or so it was just like people were so scared. So they would come in and when people are scared in an emergency room specifically, All emotions go wild. You know, you see so many tears, you see anger, you see frustration, and no family members can be there. It's not like we can have their brother or their sister, their mom, their dad, their nobody can be in there with them. It's just them. So little old 80-year-old grandma laying there in the bed alone by herself is sitting there terrified, crying that she thinks she's going to die because she has COVID. Yeah. And really, there's nothing really at this point. COVID is I mean, I don't wish that upon anybody. But like at that point, COVID's not really doing anything like she, she we're going to keep her in the hospital to watch her. But like that's not what's going to that like that's not the disease process. That's not her time to die. You know what I mean? Like that's not her time right there. Yeah. But she's terrified because she she's heard for years. She's heard for a year and a half that you die from COVID and she's just 
scared. Right. And her daughter her, or her son that wants to get to their grandmother, sorry, their mother. I, I can imagine the trauma for the pr- people that are waiting out, waiting in the car who can't or are not allowed to go see their, their family member. Yeah. I mean, I think all around. This podcast sort of stemmed out of the collective trauma of COVID-19. So it's really good that we're having this conversation today. I've made it very clear talking to Todd. I was like, I want to really focus on this because I think it is really important for people to understand that they may not even realize the kind of trauma that they went through during that period of time of just psychologically of take away even the fact that kids couldn't go to school that people couldn't socialize. I mean, I personally had just gone through a divorce. So like my pod was like me and my small children. And so while other people are like, oh, I get to stay home and I don't have to work. And this is great. I'm like, I am slowly like, and I'm in the hospitality industry. So everything shut down. It was very traumatizing for me. And on top of that, I got one of the early, the early, the OG COVID. And so did my nanny. And my nanny was one of those people that was on a, like on the verge of being on a ventilator and went back several times because of her oxygen levels. And she had to do it all by herself. Like she couldn't even that in and of itself was terrifying for her. But for us that is like just waiting to hear what's going on. I can see that like I felt the same way as it as it progressed and we got some more treatments like there were ways like we figured out different whether it be just medicinal or or just having more of a grip on what was going on that that feeling continued because it was such a big mm-hmm. like in your face thing. I guess my question is that did y'all feel like you were you were prepared that you did kind of have just to put in context, in, in South Carolina, there was a much different method <laughs> than there right. was, say, in California. Yeah. So did, did you feel like it was something that was taken very seriously and that, that you guys kind of had it, had better control over it than maybe some other places? That's a good question. I'm not sure if we definitely had more resources going to it, towards it. I will say that. Like, we dumped all of our resources, at least from the emergency department, all of our resources went to COVID. All of the outside elective surgeries, they, they all stopped. Like, everything stopped that could stop. Like, appointments got canceled, things like that. So a lot of those people, even like the staffing from that, came to the emergency department and started helping out. We took them on as extra help. So I would say that we had probably more help. We did exactly like the rest of the country. L.A. still had the we had the shortage of of PPE for about a year. So were we prepared in that regard? No, we were not. You know, we were just like we I think I used the same in 95 for like four months. Like that thing could not have been helpful at all. I don't know how I didn't get COVID at that point. Yeah, like I had the same in 95. I was like, ah, well, you know. Whatever. It's gotten me this far. I can't imagine for you, Sam, going in there. Sorry to interrupt you, but going in there every day, I mean, sort of into the fire every day, not knowing even in the beginning. I think the beginning is more of what I'm Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what you were going through in your own brain, having to go to work and put on put on all that that gear. I mean, you you were truly on the front line of, of something that was going to possibly kill you. Yeah. So I can't imagine the psychological, I don't know, duress you were under during that time. I think you kind of separate yourself. You have like your nursing life and then you have your regular life. And you kind of had to put that armor on 
every day that you would go to work, you would just gear yourself up towards going to work like, okay, going to work today. This is a work day. We're going to go. We're going to see some patients and then we're going to take off all our clothes literally because we don't want those clothes anymore. Put them in, a, you know, in our bathtub because where else are you going to put them that they're not going to touch anything else because you're afraid that it's still like could be like contact. And I mean, it is contact, but like, you're, you know, you're still afraid of all of that. So like I really had to separate myself. We're not going to lie. We started therapy. I started therapy. <laughs> I mean, well, that that's great because I think that a lot of people needed to start therapy during that time. But per- yeah. in particular, you that are that are in the in the thick of it. So, I mean, I know you say you kind of com- compartmentalize it, but do you feel like you suffered any kind of trauma or emotional duress, if you will, f- distress from watching people die around you? And and how do you not take that home with you? I think you do kind of take it home with you. There's an extremely high turnover rate in the emergency room. It's about five years for a nurse in the emergency room. Once they, they say that's the burnout rate. I'm just past that. I'm just past the five-year mark in, in emergency medicine. I definitely feel it. It definitely wears on you. You get to be kind of edgy about things that you were never edgy about. People talk about pain and you just kind of are like, okay, cool, you're in pain. Like you just don't, there, there's times where you just, you don't feel it like the empathy that you used to feel like when you first become a nurse, you're like, I'm so sorry, you're in pain. I'm feeling your pain too. You don't, you no longer feel that pain, although you feel sympathy for these people. Like you feel, it's like, I, I feel bad that you're in pain, but it's not, you kind of create that distance between you and patients. The longer you're a nurse, the more distance you create between you and someone else, even though that's survival. Yeah. And it's survival. Right. And it's like you create these survival techniques for yourself as specifically like as a nurse that sees death and seeing things like that. It's like you have to. But the first couple of years that you're a nurse and especially working in emergency medicine, it's like, I mean, you'll never forget the first death that you see. You know, you'll never forget that first code. You'll never forget Mine happened on day one of me becoming a full-fledged nurse. Okay. Well, first of all, that is yeah. bananas. But how long had you been a nurse in, until COVID-19 hit? So I was a nurse just over three years. Okay. Or just coming to three years when COVID hit. But I had always done emergency medicine because I went straight into a grad program that dropped me into emergency medicine, which isn't typical. There's not a ton of programs that do like straight to ER. You usually have to be like a floor nurse first. But where I went to school in Nevada, they definitely had programs out there that dropped you into ICU or ER. You just had to have more training. Sam, what are some major differences you see in the ER in your career as a nurse from March of 2020 to today? You said, and I quote, that nurses, quote, went from being heroes back to being poop on your shoes. So what did you mean by that? Do you think that the reverence for nurses and medical teams since the pandemic has changed drastically or at all? Yes. So unfortunately, I feel like... This is such a hard thing because some people do not think this way. So this is not a blanket statement. What I'm about to say is not a blanket statement. This is not everybody. But in general, and I'm not saying this even happens like anywhere else, but maybe large cities where the culture is different, where we have more beliefs of social medicine and things like that. We've gone from people feel more entitled to things. There's like a little bit of entitlement now that there never was before. Like it used to be before. How so? Yeah, before 2020, it was like people would come in and be like, I'm in pain. Okay, you're in pain. Let's help that pain. Let's figure out that pain. And for the most part, people were pretty like 
okay, they're a doctor, they're a nurse, we're getting things done, we're moving forward. 2020 happened, and because everybody got scared, it was like, we all became heroes. It was like, oh my God, you're risking your life to save our lives. I'm in pain, but you're risking your life to be in there. You're risking everything you have to be with me, to help me. Fast forward another year, and it's like, what do you mean you're not helping me? What do you mean all you're going to do? What do you mean all you're going to do is help me just take my pain away? But I have every other medical issue known to man. I'm, I'm dying here. Don't you see I'm dying? And they have this like entitlement that we should have known this whole time that they were at this position and we should have known their chronic pain for three years and we should be helping them. And with the snap of our fingers, we should be able to fix them. And it's hard to explain, but it's almost like this entitlement of like they deserve to be treated with everything under the sun. Yeah. You know, I mean, of course, respect. Every patient deserves respect, but it's like a beyond respect. It's like now we see, OK, this is a poor example, but nurses will understand this. A lot of times as a nurse, you have to take your patient to the bathroom. Right. And a family member will be sitting with them. They're not COVID patients like a family member will be sitting with them and they ring the call light and you come into the room and you've been busy. And then you come into the room and you're like, yes, how may I help you? They're like, my mom needs to be taken to the bathroom. And you're like, oh, OK. So you like unhook them. You get them, you know, ready to go. Does she walk? Yes, she walks. Oh, OK, sure. Do you mind walking? Uh, no, that's your job. OK, OK. I will walk your mom who walks, who's able to walk herself. I will walk her to the bathroom. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. I was not in the middle of doing an enema and sedating a patient on my other side. I was not. Don't you worry. I am going to stop right now everything I do and walk you your mom who walks who's normally independent, to the bathroom. And you just, it's like this, like, feeling of, like, I am so sorry I walked up on, like, you, you as a nurse are like, could you help me out here? Like, could yeah. you walk your mom to the bathroom if you're, if you're you know, like, your mom walks every day. Like, she's fine. Okay, I'm going to walk your mom to the bathroom. So at that point, you're just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to walk you to the bathroom. I'm going to come back. And then, you know, you hook her back up, you get back to your life, and then you, the call light goes off again. And you, like, come back in the room, like, my mom's in pain. And meanwhile, the mom is not saying anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the mom's like, I'm good. I'm OK. And the daughter is doing like all this talking. But that like sort of entitlement of like we have to come into the room right away and we have to treat this patient right away when, yes, her mom needs care, but it's not immediate. Like there's an emergency down the way. You're kind of talking like, do you remember that movie in terms of endearment where Shirley MacLaine goes, give my daughter the shot? Yeah. I feel like that's probably <laughs> all of these patients. <laughs> Is this like something that you think like that literally is like a shift from before the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Like this is, oh my gosh, so it's like a rampant thing that's going on. And, and I wonder in some ways if that's like kind of this symptom of this collective trauma everybody's gone through and, and nobody's, I won't say nobody, there are a lot of people and hopefully this podcast is helping people to understand that you do need like that support that therapy is important that working through all of that and, and what you went through is important but like it's just nuts to me it almost feels like a fatigue like they got everybody just got so tired of it and then they came out cranky as sorry Jackie yeah. but cranky <laughs> as fuck and I just I feel like it was I just can't believe it was so because it was definitely that way in the hospitality industry I mean it still is I mean it's people that are like yeah we were Closed down. And this is what I find just extremely ridiculous because, yes, at a, at a hospital, it's life or death. There's you need to be there. But when people started coming back to restaurants, it was like this mm -hmm. the same exact thing of like 
excuse me, you do not have a bottle of sanitizer on on this table. There's only one on on those tables. Or we don't really care about COVID, so we're not going to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. When you have the same people that are like literally taking pictures of your staff that like aren't wearing masks correctly and putting them on Google and Yelp and being like, this place doesn't know how to do it. Like it was like you couldn't win. And a part of me was like, y'all, you don't have to go out to eat. Like, this is a voluntary experience. Like, and you're so entitled Mm -hmm. that at this point that it's, and I would have thought it would have been the opposite. Like, yay, we're all out. We get to celebrate again. But it was like, for whatever reason, I think because everybody was just, had all this pent up aggression or, or frustration. I mean, it, it, I think it's calmed down a little bit, but mm-hmm. I mean, Todd's kind of got this shocked look on his face, but like, well, it's, it's interesting that you both shared similar experiences. I mean, obviously two completely different medical field and restaurants, but the same feeling about COVID and the same attitude towards it and the same attitude towards the people that are just trying to do their jobs Yeah, is just, everyone's pissed off. Everyone's like over it basically. But it was very similar. It was very similar to the hospitality industry. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like there was, you know, there were times that we had, especially in South Carolina and I'm going to call it out because our governor did not, I feel like handle it well and did not give guy and not to say that there was a right or a wrong way to do it. I just feel like it was like confusion everywhere. There was these people saying do this and these people saying do that. And mm-hmm. and at one point they literally told us, we're not going to tell you what to do. We'll just know when you do it wrong. And then we're going to like, then we'll shut you down. And it was like, well, Okay, so we just did everything we could do. We put plexiglass up everywhere. I mean, we made people, everybody had to wear masks, but there nobody really understood that these servers that were coming to serve you food were also putting themselves at risk by you not wearing a mask and you spitting out, you know, talking with your mouth full. Like it was a, it was kind of a shock to me how people reacted to that. Sam, did you ever have any patience? that would like refuse to wear a mask or that were did not believe in COVID-19 or thought that y'all were, if you, you were like, you have COVID and that's why you can't breathe. They, they just didn't believe you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Really? Yes. All the time people would try and like come in without a mask, but it's hospital policy. If you don't wear a mask that we can like, it's either you wear your mask or nobody's going to come and take care of you. Yeah. You either pull your mask up over your nose and your mouth. Do you know how many times? Please pull your mask oh my up. God. Please pull your mask up. Oh my God. Please pull your mask pain, up. So. Please pull your mask up. Because <laughs> as a nurse, you just at a certain point, you're like, whatever. Fine. I have to go into the room and serve you anyways. Fine. I have to help you. But the doctors get your phone out. Get your cell phone out. Make them have it. And they, they'd send the nurse in there to like make sure their cell phone worked so that the, the doctor could call them. And they'd stand outside the window and talk to the patient. If you're not going to wear your mask, then I'm going to talk to you outside here. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. So you're saying that the doctors would send y'all in there, but they wouldn't step foot in there. I mean, yes, that did happen. Not yeah. every doctor was like that. No, I shouldn't say every doctor was like that. Lord. Not every doctor was. There's lots of nice doctors. Right. But I, I guess if a doctor goes down, not that, but if a nurse goes down, you're still short staffed if a nurse goes down as well. Like, well, that's what I was going to say when earlier when you were talking about, like, you know, to all the nurses out there, congratulations on, on finishing that thing. Like, I also think there should be so much credit given to nurses as a whole. And I have a lot of friends that are both doctors and nurses, but like, nurses are doing doing most of the work. 
guys. Like it's, yeah, you know, the doctors that, and they do need to focus on their expertise and all of that. But it's like, you guys are really the ones that are in the shit. Literally, figuratively, whatever word you want to say, <laughs> that is a very true statement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> very true. Yes. Yes. People forget that. How did it make you feel though, to have people literally be like, you know, this isn't real while they're going in to be treated for that exact thing? And they can't breathe. Oh, gosh. I remember this one patient. It was at the beginning of COVID. And I go in and we find out he's COVID positive. And he's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. He is like satting like 80%. I was like, sir, you're going to have to put your mask on, like your oxygen mask. Like, we're going to have to put an oxygen mask on you. And he's like, no, 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 no. I don't need that. I don't need that. And I was like, sir, <laughs> if you don't put your oxygen mask on, you're going to stop breathing. Like your oxygen's going to drop. We're going to have to put you on high flow. Like this might end up into like an intubation thing. You have asthma, you have COPD. And now, now you have COVID. Like these are not good combinations. Like you have to put the mask on. We have to get that oxygen up at least to 90%. No, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm fine. This is all just a bunch of hooey balooey. I don't believe any of it. And I mean, I literally like I pulled out all the stops. I was like, sir, listen to me. Do you want to see your family in a week? Do you want to be alive next week? You felt like you had to use your power of like persuasion. Like you had to use like there were times where you'd be like, I had a friend who was an ICU nurse. She used to be like, I used to go into patients room and be like, do you want to die? <laughs> and I was like, I, you said that to people? And she was like, yeah, I, do you want to die? Put on your mask, put in your nasal cannula. I don't want you to die. I don't want to take care of that. And I was like. Good for you. That literally was how you felt. And like you'd come back to the nurse's station and we'd joke about it. It's like this person wants to die. They don't want to wear their oxygen. This person wants to die. They don't want to wear their oxygen. And so many times you would the alarms like we always have patients hooked up to alarms. And like you can tell when they take off their things because all their sats would drop and their alarms would go off. And you're like at the door and you're supposed to, you know, gown up and all this stuff before. And you're at the window and you're like knocking on the window like, stop it. Put, Put it on. <laughs> Dealing with toddlers. And they're like not doing it. They're not doing it. And then, you know, when COVID first came out, really high fevers were part of like the stuff. And so then like they'd be delusional, right? They wouldn't be completely with it because they have such high fevers and we'd be trying to get the fevers down. So then they'd be like pulling out their stuff, like dancing around the room, oh like my legs God. flying. And you'd be like. I really have to like get dressed. I have to put on PPE. Okay, here we go. Like you get all dressed and you get in there, you put them in, you tuck them back in, you put the oxygen back on, you you hook them back all up, take their temperature. Okay, the temperature's coming down. You're like, all right, I'm good. You walk out of the room, you look back and it's like, the patient's like that again. And you're like, oh my goodness. And do you have to wear all new PPE for, for every time you go in? You're supposed to. Yeah, yeah you're supposed yeah. to. Well, the mask, like the N95, you can keep on them like the same N95 as long as you don't touch it. Yeah. You know, and you're supposed to change the outside of like the mat. Like you're supposed to keep changing the masks and stuff like that. And your eye protection, you're supposed to wash every time you use it pretty much. Yeah. But like the gowns and stuff. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be one time, one use, that type of thing. It's just fascinating to me because another thing that, and I think everybody kind of went with through it with going to grocery stores and people, or people would have groceries delivered and they're like wiping them down and all this stuff. Like one of the big things was like the gloves, like every, like right when it all started with, with, they're like, if you're going to reopen your restaurant, everybody needs to wear gloves. And I'm like, Okay, here's the thing, guys. This is how gloves work. They are hands. They are just an extra layer of skin. So you still have to change them. Mm -hmm. If you don't change them, there's no point. You are just, you might as well just wash your hands every time. And the level of just like, 
and I and I understand it's we're not a medical institution, so there's not that same kind of level of of focus on that. But how many hours? My friend Emily and I, who's our our HR person, we were on the phone with DHEC. Like, can we can we stop it? with the freaking gloves at this point because nobody's using them correctly. And even if that is an issue, we're not sure it is. And at that point, finally, when they were like, okay, it's the surface thing is not a big deal. And so we finally were able to throw that out the window. But it was like, I just, in this weird way, I felt the same frustration. Obviously, I'm not dealing with seeing these patients being sick, but I was always worried about my employees getting sick. And the people that are coming to the restaurant that are getting sick. And you always had the bad eggs that were just like, nope, mm-hmm. this isn't real. And the other people said that you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. So I'm just not going to do any of it. So it's just uh, the whole thing. I would have just, I don't know, I would have jumped out of a window. I think if I was in the ER, <laughs> I mean, God bless you. I think the hardest thing about COVID was the families. You mentioned once like when we talked about like the Grammy, the daughter and not knowing and things like that. I think the very hardest thing about it was the phone calls in the heart in the height of it. Like we would get phone call after phone call after phone call. And you gotta imagine like we're gowning up too. Like so in the between like we're gowning up for every patient. We go into the room and it's like the doctor orders blood work, but then two minutes later we come out, we turn in that blood work and then two minutes later he orders more blood work and you're like, oh gosh. And in that time that you are used to be a 10 minute process now is taking you half an hour for all of this. And then in the middle of that, the daughter calls and then the son calls and then the husband calls and everybody's calling. And who has to answer the phone? Like the secretary answers the phone. But who's the secretary going to transfer that call to? You as the nurse. So then you have like three or four lines of people and, you know, everybody shares the same phone system. So it's like you have three or four lines of family members just waiting to talk to nurses. And then you answer the phone and one of them screams at you. One of them thinks you're a hero. The other one is like, you're not even doing your job. Nobody's telling me anything. And you're like, of course, we're not telling you anything. Like, we don't know anything yet. Like, of course, we're not doing that. Like, no, no one's going to call you and handhold you while your mom goes through this. Like, Yes, you're doing the right thing by calling us. Yes, yes, we, we can update you the best we can, but we have rules and we have Mtala and we have patient protection. And it's like every time we give out information, we have to go talk to the patient and say, hey, are we allowed to give out this information? Do you want us to talk to this person? And sometimes people are like, no, don't talk to them. Don't tell them anything. So then you have to be on the phone and be like, Mtala states that we're not allowed to say anything to you. So they're here. That's all I can tell you. They're okay. Thanks. And then like the next call is like, the second daughter. Well, you didn't tell my sister anything. What are you doing there? What are you? Gosh, here we go again. Uh, I'm. I, I know this is such a stupid thing to say, but I thought I had it bad with all the complaining from every which way. But I never really thought about the, literally the the phone calls, the dealing with the family, yeah. dealing with all of that. And I know that everybody was scared, and they just it comes from that. But it's like it's so hard to think. Like I still can't really wrap my mind around that nobody really understood that. Mm-hmm. Those of us that were in still being in the service industry, that were in the medical industry, that we also had the same only the same information that they did. So yeah. we, we were just doing our best. And so I, on behalf of everybody else that was an asshole to you, thank you so much <laughs> for doing everything. Thank you, Sam. Not everybody was, though. Not yes, everybody was, I know. but definitely, yeah. we definitely had a our fair share of getting screamed at by family members that you're like, cool, this has been a really fun day to work. 
I shouldn't have come to work today. I should have called out. I should have had COVID. Maybe I have COVID. Yeah, maybe I have COVID this week. But yeah. Let's yeah. just do it. Yeah. Well, Sam, with all of your different career paths, voiceover, baton twirling, being motion capture in video games, to nursing, to it's just incredible what you've done. Do you feel like you are achieving your life's purpose? I think we talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks, like a week ago, you and I. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because I feel like there's two different paths of my life. I feel like nursing has such a clear purpose, like you, you're helping people. It has such a like what I mentioned, it's so black and white. It's so easy to be like, well, I'm a nurse and my purpose is to help people. When you do voiceover and when you're creative, it's like you have to find your purpose. You have to figure out what what your what your job in that world is, because I mean, let's face it, being an actor is there's an element of selfishness in all of that because it's about you and it's what you want to do. But the arts create so much happiness for other people as well. But it's hard to it's such an esoteric feeling. It's not you feel better because of medicine. You're healthy because your lab work shows this. It's I feel happy because you did this spot and it's exactly the vision that I heard in my head. And you created that and made the spot beautiful and it just tied it all together. And as a voice actor, we don't hear the ending products very often. What we hear is the audition we submit. Sometimes they'll cut your audition into a spot so you'll hear it, but then you have to re-record it and you re-record it. And then sometimes you never hear the spot, like you never hear the final product. And then sometimes you do. Sometimes you turn on the TV and you're like, that sounds like me. And then you look up and you're like, oh my God, that is me. That Yeah, that was me. Oh, that's the spot. That's what it said. Oh, okay. That's what they chose to go with. Like, and you have this like feeling and you're like, oh, okay. So you have to kind of find your purpose in it and you have to find your reasons why you're doing it. And I think my biggest reason for that is like, I really love creating the vision in people's heads. I really love being that. I love helping that process. I think that's kind of why I liked being a dance captain. It's like, I loved that aspect of like, I love connecting people to their final product, which is like why Mm. I like being a dance captain or why I liked that was because it's like, oh, I know the pieces that can get you to the final product, whether it's the same people or different people or whatever. And this is voiceover is very much the same way. It's like I can create, I can be that link to what people thought they wanted. Yeah. Which is the cool thing about it. So I'm still finding my purpose in voiceover, of course. I think that that's always a constant journey. And I think you you discover things about yourself along the way, like you'll discover another whole part of yourself that you didn't even realize because the arts kind of bring that out in you, especially as you explore different genres of voiceover, whether it's like animation or commercial or even promo. It's like promo is very forward, but commercial is a little more creative and then animation super creative. So I think there's different outlets of like voiceover that you find yourself and you find your purpose in. It's kind of a great escape from nursing. It's an extremely (laughs) great escape from nursing. I have a coach currently in L.A. that's always like, as soon as you open the booth and you shut that door, your life out there is done. Because I definitely struggled, especially with the pandemic. I struggled with I should be helping people. I should be nursing. What am I doing doing voiceover? And I had this internal battle of like, I should be helping people. What am I doing? This is frivolous. This is stupid. Why am I sitting in my booth today? Why am I doing this? And I definitely had days and weeks of like, this is so stupid that I'm sitting here like trying to read copy. You said, why am I sitting here trying to sell tampons? Yeah, but at the same time, like that's for your own mental well-being. You can't be everything at all times. And I think that you have a, a great 
balance, like, and I, I definitely don't want to take away from you elaborating on any of this, but I, it's just, it's really kind of eerie. Last night I was watching that Zac Efron Netflix thing where he goes around and, and basically is like trying to see how people are helping with global warming around the the world. And yeah. he starts talking about the first, when he first came, like was on the cover of Tiger Beat and he was just like kind of in shock and was like, I don't really understand this. Like he, he felt like guilt more than anything because he's like, I'm not contributing to the world yet. I'm on the cover of this magazine. Like it makes no sense. And so that it's called down to earth with Zac Efron down to earth. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah down to earth. Yeah. And so that like drove him to, to want to help do things to actually help the world. But it's, I do think that there's, there's a connection there because like you said, you're still helping people by giving your voice to this stuff. But I think you've got a health, a healthy balance of being able to have that time for yourself or for what you enjoy doing and then yeah. also enjoying helping people. Yeah. I've, and I think it's a constant check and balance of like, am I doing too much nursing and I need to pick it up in voiceover? Am I doing too much voiceover? I need to pick it up in nursing a little bit. Like, Paycheck's not what I thought it was going to be in voiceover, so we need to pick up an extra shift. There's definitely a little balance to create the life that you want. I think that that's a really great point. But I am super fortunate to have that ability to do both because nursing is such a profession. You can't just walk into nursing. Like, you have to have a degree. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a degree. It's it's a study. So well, you got that group on for the for the voice lessons. I mean, that was a yeah. legit lesson. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, that was it. That was yeah. Or you could just go buy a Groupon or and start at the Voice Actor Studio if you live in Las Vegas. It's a great place. They are fantastic. Well, I think that it's just it's just awesome to thank you so much for just coming on. In general, we we can't thank you enough to give like the perspective of all of uh, everything that you've gone through, all of the different kind of career moves, although I do feel like they're all kind of linked in a way, but also to get that on the ground perspective of how the pandemic was for you and also for those around you and, and, and that impact that it had. And we talked about some pretty deep stuff on this in this past hour. So we have a, a tradition where we ask a question of the day. So to kind of ease out of all of the, the, the deep, dark stuff, we'd like to ask you, if you could pick up a new skill in an instant, what would it be? Something I don't do. See, this is going to be the problem. You do too much. How are you going to decide? Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is like, oh gosh. The pressure. I know the pressure of this. <laughs> it would probably be like to play some sport. I know how silly that is, no. but it probably would be like... I would be good at basketball or, I don't know, softball. I would know how to, like, play softball or something. I don't know. It would be something that would be, I think, something so different than what I do that would be that, like, social circle that I'd want to, like, create. I always look at those teams, like the adult league teams, and I'm always like, I want to play on an adult league team, but I don't know anything. I don't even know how to, like, toss a ball. Yeah. I'm like, eh. So I feel like I would be not an asset for a team like that. I'm sure there's a better skill that I would probably choose if I could think about it longer, but I'm going to go with softball at this point. Yeah. I mean, I, and I could see, especially when you weren't allowed to to twirl with all, with everybody yeah. and you were put on the outside, you want that camaraderie after going through that. You clearly have always wanted that. So I think it's a great answer. Mm -hmm. I think we can all, with all these questions that we do, I think afterwards, Todd and I are always like, oh, man. 
Wow, what a what a dumb that. what Should've a dumb answer. Yeah. But I think I I legitimately I think that that is a good answer. Todd, would what would your skill be? Oh God, probably honestly, I would want to learn how to be a pilot. I would oh. learn want to learn how to fly a plane. Okay. Well, I just started watching, gosh, was it like Keep Breathing or it's a Netflix thing. <laughs> Clearly, I spend a lot of time on Netflix. <laughs> it's basically they end up having a plane crash and this woman has to survive. And I was thinking the whole time, man, I really do need to get back to getting my pilot's license. Like th- there could be a very serious moment that you are needed, Todd, to fly that plane. So listen, it's a good, I think that's a good answer too. Yeah. Thanks. And what about you? I also kind of, it feels like a, like kind of a dumb answer too, but I feel like it'd be like to, to just know any language whenever I need it. Oh, oh, you know what? That's actually the best answer you probably could have given us. Oh, well, I'm sure <laughs> there's a lot more like, I don't know, be able to perform brain surgery or something, but I just think that that would just ease a lot of issues in everything, especially in a country that has a lot of different people from a lot of different places. It would be nice to be able to communicate in their language as opposed to constantly being like, learn some English. Yeah. Well, Sam, I, Samantha Berman, where can people find you? Oh, I'm on every social network. Thank you to uh, voiceover. So anything that's like Samantha voice, like my Instagram's like Samantha underscore voice. My email is Samantha at SamanthaVoice.com. My website is SamanthaVoice.com. LinkedIn, I think I'm just under Samantha Berman. Twitter, I'm under Samantha underscore voice. What other one? Facebook. I'm everywhere. I have every social media possible. Do I look at everything? No. Do I post all the time? (laughs) Absolutely not. But I'm there and I do see them. If if people do write (laughs) me, I do respond back. I am pretty good at that. So your your ads are always so great. I love I love listening to your commercials and stuff. It's it's awesome. Oh, when I post over, yeah. Some of them are really yeah. cool. Like the ones that I can post are really cool. Yeah. I need to go check those out because I, I didn't, I haven't had a chance to, and I, I want to hear, hear the, the magic in action. You know, that, that it just seems like a really cool job. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if I should look into it, it just because I want that booth. I want this yeah. setup. You just, I want, just the want the booth. That's really. all you want. You just want the <laughs> you booth. Imagine I could go yeah. in there and hide from my children anytime I want to. It'd be like amazing. <laughs> Mommy's in the booth. All right. And then you just need the sign out there that says recording, really? you know, and then you get this like press the button before you go in and recording. That's like shh time, you know, like, nope, it. when the light's on, you guys, you're not allowed to talk. Everybody be quiet. That's amazing. I love that. I actually have a, a little dangling closed open sign that I just put on the other side of the door, but I need one of the the lights. Yeah. You need a light. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And this was just been, it's been delightful and it was wonderful to meet you. And I, I keep on doing the, all the things that are awesome. All the things. Keep on doing the dang thing. <laughs> and I'm sure I'll have another profession in like five years. That's like the running joke in my family. Well, what profession are you going to start now? So I have a few others that I want to do that are in the back burner and hopefully one day I'll get started on those. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. We're all be watching for that. And I, I definitely think that this is not the last we're going to hear from Samantha Berman. She has many things ahead of her. Yeah. I'm trying to do a voiceover <laughs> voice. I don't know if it's working. I mean, really, you just have to be you. That's yeah. the best part about being voiceover is you don't change anything. You're just you. That's oh, the best part. Gosh, this is, this yeah. is becoming the best job ever as we as yeah. we keep talking about it. Yeah. All right. Well, we will give you back your afternoon and or morning. And we, again, can't thank you enough. And, and we'll, definitely, we'll definitely talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. See you soon. Bye. 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 
What'd you think? I mean, you know, I'm obsessed with COVID. I, I just am. I, I like, I think that it was a, a really big impact on the whole world. And I know everybody knows that, but that it's something that is important to me that I think people need to really understand the different layers of what we all went through and that it was a very enlightening and, and necessary conversation to have. I think you're correct. And like, pe- I think people just want to move on. They're like, okay, it's done. I yeah. don't want to think about it anymore. But it's like, you actually need to go through it to get to the other side and and be able to be a little happier because you don't, I don't think, I think you're right. All people are giving enough emphasis to the fact that we all went through this giant collective trauma that was so, it affected so many people. Uh, you went through death, you went through, you know, you're in the hospitality industry, so your restaurant was unable to operate except for to-go orders and stuff like that. So it slowed down the world. It just, it, we and we all need to wake up yeah, and Yeah, like go, that affected oh, yeah, me. We, we were Yeah, affected. like that, that was more yeah. than, I mean, it was one thing, and I think it's kind of one of those I think a lot of people try to think of it as like that moment of when the planes hit the towers or something like that. And it's like, this was a very long period of time where people were, I mean, if there's any kind of social experiment that you're going to do, it's like make the entire world stop functioning and see what happens. And I think we're going to see a lot of studies and stuff that come out that, that say, they show the impacts like psychologically. Yeah, for sure. And trauma wise, like I think Sam Samantha honestly she downplays the, her heroic behavior during that time. I mean, she really was in the thick of it. And hearing how she had to separate herself from her job just to survive was was really interesting to me. And the fact that she <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, all me. around there were so many things we could have gone into, but it's like I think Again, we keep seeing this pattern of people that are that go into the arts and go into creative endeavors of having like this need for validation and and have a lot of they they have a lot of mental health issues that they deal with in the arts. But it was interesting to get the perspective of how that in and of itself can create its own mental impacts of like being in that cycle of like being surrounded by everybody else is exactly the same way. And so now you're all just like collectively freaking out. Well, that's tour for sure. I think when people are on Broadway or in a show that that they can go at least go home at night and see their significant other and have a break from it. I think it's definitely it's 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 easier to have it be a job. But when it's literally your job to be with all of these people all the time, Sam was great at articulating how difficult it can actually be. And I don't envy her at all. I mean, imagine your boss is not only in the show with you, but is also telling you. They also have to, you know, because she had to be perfect. Yeah. yeah. So it, if she's not perfect, they're like, well, you, she wasn't on, she wasn't on number nine or whatever. So the way her, you, you pointed out the way her brain works, like it did. I watched her. I watched her just be able to go into a track mid show and not, and just do it. Like she had been doing it forever and she hadn't even, she had never been in that track before. Yeah. And she would just fit in the line. Like it's, it was crazy. Now I kind of feel like I want to go back and, you know, <laughs> change my question of the day answer. Because it's like, if I could just do that, if I could just be a dancer <laughs> that like watch somebody do it and, and just immediately do it, I that would be so cool. I, I literally watch that was my cool. part, my dance partner, like in awe of like, how does your brain do that? I think certain people are just, just yeah. have that brain. It just is what they're born with. And it's also her father is so brilliant and she's so, such a smart person. 
I think that that's why she makes a good nurse or would would have made a, a brilliant doctor because she she can do 5000 things at one time in her brain. Yeah. And execute it well and she makes fair smart yeah. decisions. And that's why that's why I thought it was not that big of a leap for her to go from doing the dance to doing nursing because like she brought up, I mean, I'm and no disrespect to doctors. My mother is a doctor. But they really have to be as a nurse, you have to be on and you have to like bite your tongue mm-hmm. so many times where you're just like, mm-hmm, okay, yes, no, I'm totally understand what you're saying, but like, oh my God. Right. And voice, and it's so funny, and but, but then she got into voiceover and then the pandemic happened. So when we were all home, she was able to be home and still create work for herself. Yeah. In that way. I mean, she had her, her nursing job, but she was also, had, she was able to do this other career and still be creative. And I'm sure that that probably saved her mental health while she was going to work every day for the COVID. She had that voiceover outlet to focus on, at least go into the booth, she can shut the door, and then she can forget about watching, you know, 20 people die. For sure. I mean, and then she also mentioned that she was like, and I started therapy. Right. Of course she did. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, but I mean, like, there <laughs> There are a lot of people that don't, and I'm I'm looking at y'all. I'm you can't see my eyeball my eyeballs right now, but I am looking at you people that will not start therapy, even though you know you need to, because it that was a an insane time for everybody that was involved, and and also like she said, there's been a big difference this entitlement shift with nurses of every they're the heroes. Everybody was going out and playing music in the streets and and then it became like, well, okay, we're done with COVID. This is so annoying. And now you're just a obnoxious. I actually was really and I, I hope that I didn't kind of overtake the the podcast too much with this, but I was really surprised by the similarities of what I was going through with at the restaurant. Oh, I think she was too. I think she was she was surprised as well. She said it, it is like the hospitality industry because you're you're providing a service, right? Yeah. Whether it's someone like where's my damn food or where's my damn IV, it doesn't matter. They want what they want. I guess it's just to me it was like so offensive and annoying because we are like one of those things as, as a restaurant if you feel unsafe, don't go to a restaurant. But at a hospital, you Amen. have to go and that you're still going to be like that like Right. She said in the pre-interview that that at times she's made to feel subhuman. Oh gosh, yeah. Like she's not oh, a yeah. human anymore. And she also she also mentioned to me that a trigger for patients in the hospital was that basically if the nurses are like laughing if they have a oh, moment God. where they laugh yeah. like I don't know somebody spills coffee on themselves or 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 something the patients get it is like inappropriate for the nurses to laugh so the patients get angry if they're in a serious situation in their room and the nurses are laughing at the station because of whatever they spilled something or they dropped something or yeah no yeah it doesn't even matter you're just not allowed to have a happy moment because yeah they're no longer allowed to be human so it's i my hat's off to everyone in the in the medical industry and especially in emergency rooms and she's saying it's very interesting that Nurses burn out at five years and she just yeah, passed the five yeah. year mark. But I think that, like you said, I think that vo- I can't imagine going through COVID. <laughs> but I think I know and through COVID. That's why I was like, how long have you were you in nursing before then? And it was like only right. a couple of years. And I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> I think that you're right. I think the voiceover stuff really helped her to to get through that. And I have to say that there were a lot of people, you know, doctors, nurses, hospitality, even performers that I think were kind of put in the subhuman category, because I can't tell you there were times that I had servers that people 
would ask them specifically, like, if you're going to serve me, take your mask off. Like, I don't want your mask on. I want to see your face. I want to see your face. I want to see your smile. I want to see just the same way that she's like, these people are asking. And and maybe she said this before we were on recording, but mentioned that people always ask her what, where does she live? How many, is she married? Does she have kids? And it's like, it's this expectation that you should be like, throw it all out there, be super open, give them everything that they want. And, and I just feel like it's a lack of gratefulness. Well, it's good that we're doing this because maybe people don't recognize that that's what they do yeah. when they go into a hospital. Maybe maybe we're just collectively ignorant. I'm not going to disagree with that. I think that there is a, a certain <laughs> level of collective ignorance going on. But yeah, people like this is not it's not just your world and we're all living in it like it's everybody's world. And please just like treat people with respect like they're doing a job and they're putting their lives at risk. And that was a lesson I had to really learn too during during COVID was with my own servers being like, I don't know if I feel comfortable, you know, if somebody was immune compromised or whatever, they're like, I, I just don't feel comfortable coming in. And right. we had to do whatever we could and, and we wanted to do whatever we could. But I was serious and I said, we spent hours on the phone with DHEC of like, okay, if this is a scenario, what do we do then? And how many days is the, you know, the, that you actually quarantine as opposed to isolate? It was, it was a nuts time. And I just think that this was an important was. conversation to have so that people can maybe put a mirror up and realize that it affected you in ways that, and as we've even seen with our other guests, that divorce rates went up, that all kinds of changes and it's affected almost every person that we have had on. I mean, I'd say, I dare say every person we've had on in big ways. And I think people need to kind of take that in, take that in and go to therapy. 100%. And we can't thank Samantha Berman enough for coming on the program. Oh man. Yeah. She was fantastic and always love getting those like really in-depth perspectives. And I can't tell you her booth is so cool and I want one. And so I'm just going to build a replica and I'll post a picture of everything on on all of our social media. And again, guys out there, if you if you like this podcast and you like us and you want to listen and you want us to keep going, please subscribe and follow because otherwise we we don't we don't know if uh you know how much you like us and we want to keep doing this. So, thank you. Thank y'all for listening and hopefully you're taking something from this. Okay. Well, it was lovely as always to see you and I can't you wait too. until next week and have a wonderful day in Los Angeles. Todd. You have a wonderful day in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, goodbye, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>